and welcome everyone to the ninth episode of Story Search, a podcast hosted by me, Andrea Lemoines, and my coworker Joe Shimtov. The show explores stories connected to artifacts. Season one focused on the artifacts, specifically at the Free Library of Philadelphia. Right. Um, thanks, uh, Andrea. Today we'll focus on a 17th century book written by Thomas Morton. It's called The New Canaan, and it's printed in Amsterdam in 1637. We have a copy in the collection of the uh, Free Library, which we call the Americana Collection. We'll talk to our guest today, Peter C. Mankal, who in 2019, in his 2019 book, he wrote The Trials of Thomas Morton, an Anglican lawyer, his Puritan foes, and the battle for New England. And in it, he writes about the importance of actually a different narrative and what could have been uh, had the Puritans not, uh, and especially the Pilgrims, not won out of. So Professor Mankell is also a uh, history professor at the University of Southern California, and he focuses on early American Native, early America, Native Americans, and the early modern Atlantic world. Yeah, so before we dive into the conversation with Dr. Mankell, I want to talk a little bit about the amazing collection, like the Americana collection we have at the Free Library of Philadelphia. It was assembled by William L. Elkins and given to the library before his death in 1947. The collection is devoted primarily to the colonialization and exploration of North America from the earliest European voyages to the Western expeditions of the 19th century. It includes rare maps, manuscripts, and printed books. Among the many amazing items in this collection is a manuscript written by George Percy documenting the starving time in Jamestown, Virginia, between 1609 and 1610. And Joe, when things get kind of back to what we hope they are, and I can get to the rare books department, I want to come see that. I did not know we had that in our collection. Yeah, we have so many amazing things. We're just highlighting two items out of the many Obviously, the book that we're talking about is the main item today. Another one is a 1583 hand-drawn map that was made by Queen Elizabeth I's advisor. His name was John Dee, and uh, he gave it to Humphrey Gilbert. It shows him the Northwest Passage. So it's just an amazing map. It's hand-drawn. Following Elkins's death, his family actually donated the physical library to the free library where the books are now kept. So when you do come in, Andrea, and when our, we go back to normal, visitors can come and see the physical library where the books are kept and also the, the books themselves. You can just make an appointment. Looking forward to that day, Joe. I, I really miss yeah, visiting so the library. I. So am I. Yes. <laughs> Professor Mankel, thank you so much for being a guest in the show today and for writing this amazing book. Oh, it's my great pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to do an event uh, with the Free Library of Philadelphia, one of my favorite places when I was growing up in Philly. Oh, that's so good to hear. I, I was a library kid growing up too. I just love the library. And the book you wrote really talks about, you know, how historical narratives are created and reinterpreted over time, right? Yes, that's one of my goals is to sort of think about what are the dominant stories that seem to have prevailed in the way People have talked about American history now for hundreds of years. And then what are the other ways we can talk about the past and really sort of get at what I hope is sort of a, certainly a more complex view of what actually happened several centuries ago. First of all, I must say I love the book because it forces me to go back and look at our copy of uh, New Canaan. One of the things when you're working in a special collection is you can't know about everything. There's so many collections. We have so many collections 
And then when it, within each collection, there are a lot of things, a lot of documents. So it really set the stage for me. And so before we talk a little bit more about the book, I'd like to set the stage a little bit because it's kind of tricky to dive into the narrative that you lay out and the narrative of your book and Thomas Morton's book. So we're looking at the pilgrims. They set sail on the Mayflower, 1620, for the New World. And the pilgrims are a, like a subset of the Puritans. But they set sail from England, and they do so in order to create a, uh, a colony, a model colony, separate from the Church of England, separate from the English monarchy. And they're different than the Puritans. So the pilgrims are separatists. Puritans are reformers. They want to reform. They're not crazy about separating from England or from the church. But the majority, as I understand it, of the voyagers on the Mayflower are pilgrims. Can you talk a little bit about who these people were, how they are different than the Puritans, and how both these groups were different from the Church of England, just so we can have a little bit of context here. In the early 16th century, after the Protestant Reformation, the English church breaks away from Rome under King Henry VII and creates the, the Church of England, the National Church, of which the monarch is also the head of the church. And uh, as a national church, the expectation is that everyone uh, who lived within England would basically be a member of the church. It had sort of open membership policies, if you want to go that. There were certain groups who had exemptions, but most people in England were to go to Church of England services. Beginning in the later decades of the 16th century, a number of, of religious thinkers, I guess we could say, really digging deep into scripture, started to interpret scripture in ways that differed from the mainstream interpretation of the Church of England. And by the latter decades of the 16th century, they had really begun to fracture and splinter away. And we generally refer to these groups as Puritans. And they launched a fairly intense critique of the practices of the Church of England. Joe, within what you said was absolutely right. Within this sort of larger body of Puritans, there was a smaller group, the people that we tend to know, think of as pilgrims, who decided that the Church of England was essentially unsalvageable. So they separated from it. They first went to Leiden, and then they eventually, in 1620, came across the Atlantic Ocean. The number of pilgrims was much, much smaller than the number of Puritans who would later arrive starting in 1630 with the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So just to put that in some sense, there were probably a few hundred pilgrims who went to New Plymouth, as it was known then, compared to, say, about 21,000 who went to Massachusetts between 1630 and 1642. And in 1642, with the rise of the Civil War in England, religious dissidents who were Puritans began to think, wait, they can stay home and reform things there. And then for a while, they became dominant in English politics. By that point, the pilgrims had established themselves in New Plymouth and the Puritans had established themselves in Massachusetts Bay. And those Puritans then had started to spread out into the area that we now think of as New England with offshoots going into the Connecticut Valley, down into New Haven, and eventually offshoots going into what is now Rhode Island. So Plymouth was a separate migration from those, but 
really to modern readers, even to someone like me who reads their stuff fairly frequently, the distinctions between them are far less important than what joined them together. And what joined the Puritans and the Pilgrims together and becomes central to the story of someone like Morton is that they really very firmly believed in notions of predestination, that everything was the unfolding of a divine plan. And if you take this perspective, what scholars refer to as a providentialist perspective, if you take that perspective, then you interpret all actions that you see through that lens. And it means that everything that happens was supposed to happen. And one of the crucial areas where people didn't know exactly what was going to happen is who had their God intended to be saved, who would have salvation and who wouldn't. One of their critiques of the Church of England, maybe their central critique of the Church of England, is by letting everyone into the church, there was a presumption that anyone, had they lived a proper life, they could achieve salvation. The Puritans and pilgrims didn't believe that. They believed that individuals were born with some saving grace, and part of life's journey was to figure out, do they have it? One of the things that differentiated the pilgrims and the Puritans in North America from the Church of England was that there was a rigorous process to become a full member of a church. You couldn't just sort of show up as we might today at a religious institution and say, I want to be a member. You would have to show up. You would have to then be interrogated about your views. I mean, they were essentially cross-examined about their faith. And if they passed certain tests, they would be admitted to full membership. And in 17th century New England, full church membership was crucial for people who wanted to, say, hold political office or make other advances in society. So it wasn't sort of oh, I'd like to go to this church or I'd like to go to that church. Instead, the dominant ethos within this community is only the most valuable people, the most worthy people would be full church members. So that was a policy that really differentiated them from the Church of England and differentiated them from people like Thomas Morton uh, and others who had more traditional Church of England views, more traditional Anglican views, we would say now, which didn't have that sort of trial of one's faith. Thank you for that great summary. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your book is because it was so difficult to voyage, to travel, so many ships came back. And we love to pick on the pilgrims and we love to pick on the Puritans. But how important is that idea of predestination and manifest destiny, which I think are the same thing? But how important is it when it came to colonizing New England, Southern New England, because of the difficulties that people confronted Did that actually help them? And I know that uh, you suggest in your book, and that's one of the themes with Thomas Morton, that 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 didn't have to be the case. That's not the narrative that could have played out. We could have been looking at something completely different. But going back to predestination, that in a way made them successful. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, I would first say that I, I... Uh, In the way that we commonly, that I would commonly use the terms of manifest destiny and predestination, one, really, the notion of predestination speaks individuals, and manifest destiny is a term that I don't normally use talking about early America because it's so deeply integrated into sort of a 19th century expansionary United States moving Mm. basically from North America to the Pacific. So I think maybe one is along the individual lines and one maybe... The, the destiny of a nation. I mean, that itself is a very disputed concept. But the interesting question is, you know, did the pilgrims and Puritans firm attachment to this idea of predestination and demonstrating some signs of saving grace, did that help or hinder them? Well, the documented record for Plymouth 
is not as thorough as it is for Massachusetts. But for Massachusetts, it's pretty thorough. So Massachusetts, when it founded in 1630, attracts a lot of people who are very intense about their religious views. And during some of the process of discussing their religious views, the people who came to define the orthodox position in Massachusetts, the ones who came to control the Massachusetts Bay Colony, in fact, found themselves pushing people away. So it famously pushed out Anne Hutchinson. It pushed out Roger Williams. These people become famous in American lore for sort of departing from it. Each had somewhat different views about how they interpreted faith tradition. The real proof, though, I think, Joe, to get to your question, the real proof, did this help? Really, I think we get an answer to that in the middle of the 17th century. When the Puritans, again, we have much more, we have much richer records for the Puritans than the Pilgrims, but in either case, when these groups of people migrated, they tend to migrate in what we might think of as young family units. That is, there was often a wife, a husband, and two or three small children. And so coming over was really, you could say, an act of faith, right? That here were people, mm -hmm. most of them lived in cities, coming over into what they called a wilderness. That's a very complicated concept, but what they thought was a wilderness. And they did it thinking, well, if we're getting this right, our religious views are right, then somehow things are going to unfold for us, right? God, in some theoretical sense, will take care of us. Okay. That explains the wife and the husband. But what about the children? So when the children came over, they could not go in front of churches and demonstrate that they had saving faith. They had to learn how this whole business worked. And so those children eventually became adults and they formed families and they had children. And it was the birth of that third generation, the grandchildren of the migrants, somewhere around the turn, middle of the 17th century. All of a sudden, people in these churches started to look and think, wait a minute, should we baptize? these babies when their own parents who come over as children or perhaps been born soon after in, in, in New England, when those people had never offered themselves up for full membership in the church. And so this led to a great spiritual crisis among the Puritans that they eventually resolved something called the halfway covenant, which is they would decide, yes, we will offer baptism to babies because if we don't and an infant should die, and they came from a world where infant death was tragic and common, we would, by denying baptism, interfere with that individual's possible progress to salvation. But they said, baptism will not signal full church membership. They'll have to testify to that later. So hmm. to get back to your question, did predestination and this firm belief help them? I would take a somewhat, I mean, not a skeptical view, but a demographic view and say they did not really manage to convince all of the next generation to accept the same premise of their faith over the course of the 17th century until it sort of sets up in the early 18th century with someone like Jonathan Edwards, what becomes the Great Awakening and a reversal of a policy that says, wait, we don't want to keep you out of the church. We want to welcome you into the church. So one of the things that disappeared was that obsessive concern about knowing in advance someone's ultimate fate. So we could debate that for a long time. I'm not sure how much their faith helped them on the ground, although I would say to give them all benefit of the doubt. I would say if they hadn't had that faith, I can't imagine young women and young men risking the lives of their children to sail across the Atlantic Ocean and to try, mm -hmm. and, try and join these new communities. So I think right. they were real believers in that sense. Thank you for that uh direct and thoughtful answer. It's counterintuitive, but yeah, you're right. And so before I uh, hand you over to Andrea, we've barely spoken about the Anglicans. 
So let's take a look at Thomas Morton. And I know that your book tells that story. It's pretty much what it's all about. But how is Thomas Morton? And, and we'll, we'll get into the book a little bit later on with Andrea. Uh, she'll, she'll ask you some questions. But how was Thomas Morton such a, a thorn in the side of the pilgrims? What, what was it about him that set them off? And there were a lot of things. I read your book. But if you can summarize that as well. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. We don't know much about Morton except, you know, he seemed to have been trained as a lawyer and he was a, a member of the Church of England. And we know that he is very loyal to King James, who takes over the throne on the, upon the death of Elizabeth in 1603. I believe that Morton, when he makes a claim saying that he made a brief journey to, to New England in 1622, I think he did that. I think he came over in 1622 and went back. As I talked about in the book, Morton had a lot of family drama at the time, but maybe we'll get into that later. He returns to New England, he returns to Plymouth in 1624, 1625, and he goes north and he takes over essentially a more or less abandoned trading post. And so Morton moves in and Morton uh, seems to attract a rather small number of English men to go there with him. I mean, we have to remember that the Mayflower and all these other ships, though they brought pilgrims, they also brought other English who came over who wanted to also set up in colonies in North America and had very different views from the pilgrims. So Morton heads up from Plymouth and, and sort of positions himself at this place, you know, Mount Wollaston. He would eventually call it Marymount for its great views of the sea, what we now think of as Boston Harbor and Massachusetts Bay. And he gathers a small number of guys with him. I mean, you can sort of think about them sort of as relatively young and they none of them seem to have permanent attachments. And then in 1628, so he'd been there for three or four years, they erect an 80-foot-tall maypole, and they put up some big deer antlers uh, at the top of it. And according to William Bradford, and then eventually according to Morton himself, they started drinking and singing and dancing around the maypole, and they invited local Native peoples, Massachusetts, Wampanoag, to join them, and their sternest critic was William Bradford, who was the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and he saw Morton as really an existential threat to the pilgrims, as I think he saw Morton as a test, that if you believed in a providential, if you took a providentialist view of life, the pilgrims must have been thinking, or might, I think, were thinking, God put Morton here to test us. Are we serious in our faith? And so Bradford gets uh, Miles Standish, who Morton mocks. He calls him Captain Shrimp. Bradford gets Standish to go down with a group of armed men to basically arrest Morton. And they show up and these guys around Morton, and it's a small number. I mean, Morton never succeeded in getting many people to join him. They're so drunk that the only blood that shed that day is when one of the inebriated guys falls over, literally falls over and cuts his nose on the end of, of one of the pilgrims' guns. And so they arrest Morton and send him away. And then the next year, John Endicott comes. He would be famous uh, in the early history of Salem. He comes and chops down the maypole. The pilgrims are convinced that they have passed the test. They, they have bound Morton up. They left him on the Isle of Shoals. A ship comes by, takes him away. And we're never going to hear from this guy again. He is gone. We have passed the test. And the maypole is gone. Now, I should say, just to take a brief step backwards, the king of England himself thought they were sort of harmless recreations. But the Puritans thought that they were the, the locus of bad behavior and that whenever people would erect a maypole, it would lead to licentiousness and sloth and sexual license and all sorts of terrible things would happen. 
So the Puritans who wrote about the maypole in the end of the 16th century, the Puritans, the pilgrims, I should say, of Plymouth, saw the maypole as a sign and said, okay, we have to get rid of it. Later on in our conversation, we're going to find that Morton was truly a threat. At this point, given how few people were aligning themselves with Morton, was he really a threat? Was it just a perceived threat? What's the situation there? As we might look at it now from, say, a secular 21st century perspective, we would say Morton and these few guys he attracted pose no real threat to the people of Plymouth. Yes, it's possible that if they establish more cordial relations with local native peoples, they would be able to trade for furs, and that might undermine the economy of Plymouth. So one of the things we forget about Plymouth is that Plymouth really needed the fur trade to pay off their debts, the pilgrims did, to pay off their debts in England. So you could say, well, it posed sort of a small economic threat, and maybe that would get bigger if he could convince more natives to bring their furs to them and to avoid New Plymouth. But that's more of a theoretical threat than anything. So on one level, he doesn't pose any real threat. But on another level, and this goes back to your earlier questions about sort of a providential way of thinking, he does pose an existential threat to them. Because if they let him stay there, if they don't tear down the Maypole, which their own writers have said, this is a dangerous sign, right? This is madness. You know, this is licentiousness run amok. If we don't take that down, then we will have failed in the eyes of God. And this happened in 1628 into 1629. It's in 1629 that John Winthrop is coming across the ocean on the Arabella, and he gives this sermon, a model of Christian charity, which then becomes very famous in American lore because it's where he said, we shall be like a city on a hill and all the eyes of the world will be upon us, a a line he gets from the book of Matthew. So modern Americans look at Winthrop and they say, oh, the Puritans were convinced that they are going to be the best place ever, right? And by some, do some weird math, America, the United States would be the best place ever. And that's why Ronald Reagan loved that sermon so much. But the full text of what Winthrop said doesn't say we'll be a city on a hill and we'll be great. The full text says we'll be a city on a hill and everyone will be able to see us. And by everyone, I think what he has in mind is that God will be able to see them clearly once they're there. God looked down and saw the maypole. Then God and the Puritans were brilliant at reading scripture. They saw plenty of times when their God punished people for doing the wrong thing. They probably could have concluded, I would argue they did conclude, that they had to get rid of Morton, because if they didn't, they would then face some sort of divine punishment. Okay, so real threat versus perceived threat, you can argue both. But now they exile him. He's exiled to England. And can you talk about the new chapter that's about to emerge? As I understood it, reading your book, there's a real threat coming on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. So the pilgrims have shipped Morton back to England and Bradford in Upland Plantation, which is sort of the most important and most widely cited history we have from the 17th century, basically says he spent a long time in the Exeter jail. Well, that is not true, though the records are sort of inconclusive. We know that Morton, in fact, comes right back and he comes back and he first goes to Plymouth, but he quickly turns around and he goes to this new colony of Massachusetts Bay. And almost immediately, he runs afoul of of Winthrop and the other authorities in Boston. And they then exile him back. So now within a course of a few years, he's been exiled twice. This is where Morton now poses 
the real threat to the Puritans and the Pilgrims and their vision. He meets up with a wealthy war veteran named Fernando Gorgias. And Fernando Gorgias has been for years very interested in this area that we call New England. In fact, he believed he was part of a company that had a legal title to that claim that went back as far as 1606, the New England Company. And Gorgias sees in Morton, this guy who's been exiled twice and is a lawyer, and basically starts to employ him. And we have the records of the meetings that this group of people start to have in 1631, 1632, where they're basically laying out a claim, wait a minute, those people in Massachusetts Bay, now Massachusetts Bay is much bigger than New Plymouth. Those people in Massachusetts Bay are on our land. We need to get it back. And the way we need to get it back is we need to get their charter revoked. Now, one of the things that I learned in writing this book, I mean, I've learned a lot about Morton, but one of the things I learned was this really deep obsession that in English law at the time, they needed to get the physical piece of parchment back. The physical piece of parchment had a portrait of the king on it, had the king's signature on it, had the king's seal on it. It was whoever owned that piece of parchment owned this expansive territory that we think of as the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And so Morton and Gorgeous basically say, okay, we have to get this back. And so they try various courts and they finally get a judgment with the king on their side that the people in Massachusetts have to send back the charter. Had that happened, had the people in Massachusetts actually done it, Morton, or especially Gorgeous, would have taken over, could have taken over all of Massachusetts. But in point of fact, the people in Massachusetts refused to send back the physical charter. And so Morton and Gorgeous at one point contemplated, well, we will send a big battleship over and we'll force them to do this. Well, that ship sunk in the docks before it got very far. The people of Massachusetts refused to give back the charter. And eventually, royal authorities in New England said, you know what? This didn't work out so well, but hey, Ferdinando Gorgeous, We'll give you Maine. And then he would then he then started let started to lay out a new colony, Gorgiana, uh, which had various names for various parts of it, and he would then have this other colony. So it was during those years of the early 1630s, going into 1635, where Morton and Gorgeous win their case that Morton really poses a threat to the Puritan occupation of New England. Right. And the legal term that you talk about is something called a quo warrento, which basically enables them to slip the rug from underneath them. But as you just elucidated, putting it into practice is a completely different thing. And they go to the courts and uh, I guess the Massachusetts courts refute that. I, I like to point out that that's almost like the beginning of the American tradition, defying authority. And that was like a, a first step in doing that. Great. Okay, Andrea, this is your cue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I just want to let you know, like, um, you know, reading your book and on this subject, I was telling Joe before the podcast, this has really thrown me back into high school history, like all over again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, I, I, I'm thrilled to right? hear that. I hope, I hope that's a positive association. It is a positive. <laughs> I love history. I was always a history nerd. I love these topics. Even at the time in high school, I remember talking about you know, early colonialism and like the colonizers and just really thinking like, who was writing this? Like, you know, the winner writes history. So like, what are the other narratives that we're missing? And like, what else is happening? This is just going deeper into that, which I 
enjoy and appreciate. And also that kind of goes, I was, it kind of ties into the real connection to the, you know, the topic of, around Thomas Morton and also how it ties into our collections at the Free Library. That book has a lot in it for as small as it is. It's so teeny tiny. And it describes a couple of things. So, you know, it, um, in the book, Thomas Morton writes about the indigenous folks in the area, their beliefs, their culture. He also talks about like the natural surroundings in New England, the regional environment, and also talks about the attacks on the pilgrims and Puritans of New Plymouth Colony and of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So in your book, you write about how Morton's book is different from so many other travel accounts. And I think my question to you is like, how is it different? What makes this work so different than other travel accounts of the New England region at that time? Oh, Andrea, that's a wonderful question. So basically, Thomas Morton, neither Thomas Morton nor the Pilgrims were the first English to set sights on this area we now call New England. Other travelers had been there before, including uh, Samuel Champlain, who actually is the first European, as far as we know, to sort of map the area where New Plymouth would eventually take hold. And Captain John Smith, who was the first person who called it New England. Mm-hmm. Well, what's different about their travels compared to Morton is that they were explorers and travelers. Their accounts are important, and a lot of the details in those accounts turn out to be pretty accurate. They had a, a much more fleeting relationship with the area. They never really got to know uh, any of the indigenous peoples particularly well. They could observe economic activity, but they didn't really talk to people. That is, you know, local indigenous people. Morton, by the time Morton writes his book, he had made probably three trips to New England in 1622 when he makes this sort of round trip in 1624-25 when he stays until late 1628 and then his return in 1629 until his next exile when he goes back. So Morton has a lot of in-depth experience. So the thing about New English Canaan, and I'm thrilled that you have a copy, there are only about 25 or so copies have survived of that book. Oh, I didn't know that. It is, it is remarkably rare. You're not the only one in Philadelphia who has one. The library company also has a copy. Mm-hmm. When Morton writes that, you know, he's writing that based on his experience, and you can feel that he's been there. He talks about his relationship with one Massachusetts man that he that he gets to know and obviously has conversations with. He's picked up something about the local language, how much we're never quite sure, although it's likely that he's learned a fair amount from three Eastern Abenaki people who had been basically kidnapped early in the century when the English thought they were going to colonize the coast of Maine, who spent mm. some time and some of their knowledge, linguistic knowledge probably survives. There's a lot we don't know about the precise details. That said, mm-hmm. Morton really can speak to people on the ground. And so when Morton goes back, he writes, and you said it right, it's basically sort of a three-part narrative. Now, it's not the first book of its kind. There's a very famous book, written by a man named Thomas Herrett called A Brief and True Report of the Newfoundland of Virginia, uh, which is known to many people, even many high school students, because the pictures from the engraved version in 1590 are like in every textbook. It's like mm-hmm. my wall pictures of what they called Virginia, we now think of as North Carolina, are in every textbook. So Morton had a model. He, had, he knew what Harriet's book looked like. He knew what other travel accounts looked like. And he had a rival in a guy named William Wood, who he thought did a really poor job of describing uh, the environment and peoples of early New England. So Morton set himself on this task. And you have to sort of, you know, while I'm writing the book, I'm thinking, what's on Morton's mind? What's on Morton's mind? What I'm thinking is, Morton is really desperate to win an argument. Like He really wants to show mm. 
place than the pilgrims and the Puritans. So he writes in depth and he shows his deep knowledge of the place in New English Canaan. And New English Canaan then contains a long section about what the environment was like. And specifically, this is common to travel narratives, talk about the economic value of what could be found in the region. And then he concludes the book with a relatively brief but very powerful critique of the pilgrims and the Puritans, who he despises and who, after all, have exiled him at that point twice. New English Canaan now is used by people. I would say it's a book that's used more than it's read. I would put myself in the category of someone who's used it for years. You can dip in, into New English Canaan to try to recreate what, what did this place look like? You can go into New English Canaan to try to recreate to the extent possible, right? You're seeing it through someone else's view, the extent possible, something about these, about native cultures uh, before widespread colonization, mm-hmm. but not before tragedy had struck in New England with this horrific epidemic that went from 1616 to 1619 and really devastated coastal populations. So Morton is seeing a world that's already been changed by the arrival of Europeans. He doesn't know that's why this disease spread, but it's already happened. So he then describes it. And he tries to publish it when he gets back to England, but agents for the Puritans suppress the book. And that's why some people who claim they have a 1632 imprint are not right. But some of the sheets from the 1632 press survived, but then it ends up being printed in Amsterdam in 1637. So the book you mentioned is a blueprint, that Morton uses it as a blueprint for his ideal society. So it's a competition of model societies. So A, it's a manual, as you just pointed out, for for travelers, Mm -hmm. but it's also a blueprint for an an alternative society, which as we know, Morton lost. You know, his did not win, at least 400 years ago, it didn't win. You know, that book that comes out is another, an additional layer of threat in addition to the Quo Orento, the support of Gorgias, the royal plot proclamation to take back their land. And then he comes with a book that's setting a model society that's anti-Puritan, anti-Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's exactly exactly what he does, right? So he doesn't prevail. I mean, he doesn't prevail because in some sense he's on the wrong side. Gorgias never managed to get enough support to force uh, the Puritans away to get them to surrender their charter in the Quo Warranto uh, proceeding. And even had he won, like if you wanted to spin up the hypothetical, well, wait, what if right. he would have the charter? What would he have done? <laughs> well, you know, Morton, you know, when I look back on him now, I mean, the book's about a year old. I, you know, when, when I think about Morton now, I think Morton is just such a lawyer. Like he's so good at finding the fault in others. I mean, he's brilliant at it, right? He, it's a withering critique of the Puritans and the pilgrims. And it's not just a critique of their religious practice, which he thinks is filled with false ideas. It's also a critique uh, basically saying well, that they were lying to the world when they said that their prime reason for going over was to convert native peoples to Protestant Christianity, which in fact is in the founding documents for these New England colonies, that they weren't just going over to make to make money, or even to set themselves up, they were going over to spread what they thought of as the one true faith, their version of the one true faith. The hypothetical is Morton wins. Well, it turns out that Morton in New English Canaan isn't really that good with laying out convincing plans for how to build 
a colony. On the one hand, he sort of says, we have to coexist with Native peoples, and the Puritans and the Pilgrims are vicious hypocrites for not doing so. And on the other hand, he comes up with sort of a model, which is sort of a quasi-feudal model, in which he and Gorgeous were somehow going to allocate large tracts of land to their English friends to take over. So he hardly has in mind, you know, a, a community where everyone lives side by side in equal economic standing. He has in mind, you know, that they're going to set up a profitable colony. Maybe he has in mind, he doesn't say this, maybe he has in mind some vision of what he thinks is going on in Virginia, which by the 1630s is a more stable place than it had been under the Virginia Company uh, and where people are generating real profits and have what they, the English, thought was a successful colony. It's unclear. So Morton is way better at criticizing than he is at building. And just to underline that point, I go back to what I said a few minutes ago. When he's at Mount Wollaston or, or Marymount, he attracts very few people. That's the story of his life in some sense. Wherever he goes, he always thinks he has the best idea, but he doesn't seem to manage to get a lot of people to agree with him. He gets enough. Right? In the Quo Warranto case, hey, King of England agrees. Whoa. That's got to be a good thing. But in point of fact, it turns out to be an empty victory because he can't, it can't be enforced. Right, which, which is an interesting segue to my next topic, which is the alternate path to colonization that you, uh, that you talk about. What would have happened had Morton won? You know, let's say just won. So in a way, Morton wins the long battle going two, 300 years in the future 18th, 19th century, how his work is going to be reinterpreted, reimagined. All of a sudden, Morton is almost like a hero. Morton is reinterpreted. And you kind of have this problem of romanticizing him. But as you just pointed out, that if you look back at Morton, what he really wanted to do, maybe he wanted to make it closer to uh, Virginia. You know, it's not as if it was like a kumbaya, everyone's friendly with each other. He definitely was representing the interests of Gorgias, and he had something else in mind, which is not exactly an idealized society, very business-oriented. So it's interesting because that, that answers the romanticization that one sees in literature, in plays, which we're talking about in one specific chapter. Right. So I'm glad you asked that. Right. So I think that's a, a really good way of putting it, that Morton sort of in some in some sense wins the long game. He wins the long game in the sense that, you know, in American culture, there's this sort of defiant streak of the anti-hero and who would be a more pompous or difficult authority figure than our imagined view of, of New England Puritans. And it's not that like we just have those views you know, by accent, we have those views because 19th century writers like Nathaniel Hawthorne defined them, you know, for us in, 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 in works like The Scarlet Letter, right? You know, these stern, moralist, hypocritical people who were just terrible to deal with. And so with them as your foes, and here comes Morton as this anti-hero. And so in that moment of sort of romanticization of in the 19th century and then going into the 20th century, those who didn't like the Puritans, who is a better foil than someone like Thomas Morton? But the trick about Morton is that most of the later cultural memory of Thomas Morton is defined in some ways less by New English Canaan than by William Bradford's description of Morton. When the scene around the Maypole and the arrest of Morton. Morton has what I sometimes think of as the one of the great cameos in American history. 
he quite literally dances on the stage of the of our national drama and then is quickly whisked off in chains and sent abroad once again. That moment, the Maypole moment, is what a lot of people like. They all go back to it. So one author after another later on. And this goes to the present day because he's useful and he's useful for those who want to who want to hold their hand out and push back against the stultifying authority of the people who were capital P Puritans then, who are a small P Puritanical ever since. So he's useful and he's someone to celebrate. And then when you follow the narrative virtually up to the present, you get to what I think of as, again, one of the biggest surprises I found in the book, that the governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, declares you know, a Thomas Morton day because Thomas Morton in New English Canaan exemplifies and articulates views that we should all celebrate today. A Thomas Morton, William Bradford, John Winthrop, none of them could have anticipated that day ever coming. Right, absolutely. And one thing that we didn't talk about that I I have to ask you is the English Civil War. When Charles I's head is cut off, Puritans win. So in, in a sense, it's not good timing for Morton and Gorgeous. It pulls the rug from underneath them in their voyage. But at the same time, then you have Puritans actually sailing back to England. How do you interpret that time in history in light of the English Civil War? Well, that's an interesting question. So basically under Charles I, you know, there is, you see the rise to power of Archbishop Laud. And he really uh, despises the Puritans and persecutes the Puritans. And it's under that period, under Charles, that we see what New England historians still refer to as the Great Migration, which starts in 1630 and goes till 1642. When the political winds shift in 1642 and the Civil War starts, and that eventually the king would be uh, executed in 1649, many Puritans believed, wait a minute, we have this very powerful vision about how a society should be run, and it should be run according to our religious views. Well, why should we go to New England? We can now do that in England itself. I mean, if you think about the title of New English Canaan, you know, New English Canaan to more is, you know, is the idea that English people were going to go across the Atlantic Ocean and create a new promised land. And they would call that a New England. Like the indefinite article in my title is quite specific. They're not battling for New England. They're battling for a New England. Right? What was this New England going to be like? Well, come the 1640s, when many of these people could practice their faith freely in England and the specter of persecution was gone. A lot of them said, let's just stay here. And some of the people in the colonies, not huge numbers, but some people in the colonies decided, okay, let's go and join what to them then seemed uh, the holier cause of reclaiming England for this new sort of Puritan moment. That ends up fizzling out, you know, and the restoration takes place in 1660. Uh, And at that point, then English politics shift again. But on the ground in North America by the 1660s, I allude, I mentioned before, the Halfway Covenant of 1662, Puritanism that drove people across the Atlantic, especially in the 1630s, it's now matured uh, in some sense. And the Puritans are living in a different world. Now, this has been an amazing conversation, Professor Mancall. I want to wrap it up on that note, because I think you hit on a lot of other things that I wanted to ask you about, especially thinking about the legacy of Thomas Morton and thinking about the legacy of colonialization 
especially, you know, right now our country is going through a lot of talks about racial reckoning in our history. And I think this has been an amazing conversation about who we are and how we got here. I'm happy that to have been part of this. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Um, just to let everyone know, you know, we're, again, we're with the Free Library of Philadelphia. Our podcast is called Story Search, and we hope that you listen in. And thanks again, Dr. Mancolin. We'll keep in touch. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.